Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. So um, would you make sure that your cell phone is in the off position, please? I want to let those of you who, I don't know that this applies to very many of you in here, um, because you're so young and energetic and, of course, gorgeous. But next Saturday at 11 o'clock, there will be a memorial service for uh, the Reverend Dr. Wayne Day, who used to be senior minister here. So uh, Jim Bankston, his successor, and um, Jeff will be doing the liturgy, and I'll be doing the homily for that service next Sunday. I mean, next Saturday at 11, and I hope you can be here. So thanks to everybody that makes it possible for you to have this live streamed and all of that. So there is this Buddhist meditation technique called Longan. And it is where on the in-breath, you take in the suffering and grief of the world. And on the out-breath, you release loving kindness and compassion in the world. Now, we're not going to do that today. I mean, well, you can if you want to sit here and do that. It would be wonderful. But there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. And um, I'm thinking particularly about the mass shootings that occurred. And so um, I'll say a little bit more about that in the, in the talk. But it's just such a such a painful thing. You know, I, I, I think we should list, lift this mass shooting up, and yet, and yet, there's one every day. There's one every day. Mass shooting being described as where four or more people are shot, um, wounded, or killed in a shooting. One every day in this country. Then you get one like yesterday with a higher concentration and certainly racially motivated killing. And um, I can't imagine what it would be like um, to have your husband or spouse or child or parent go to the grocery store and not come back. But that's what happened. So be aware that there's just some families in that part of the state of New York who are in such fear and anger and grief and um, hold them, hold them. So do whatever you need to do to get your mind and heart in the space along with your body. Uh, just take a minute to settle. Just to be present and to be open. to be here 
and to um, have a commitment to honor love and honesty and freedom and to be here with the intention that what we do benefits all people everywhere. And we, we embrace especially the combatants in Ukraine on both sides, um, people who did not want to be at war and those families in New York. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. Um, Last week, we began uh, delving into what is called the sixth story in the Gospel of John. Um, one of the fundamentals, we began talking about fundamentalism last week, one of the fundamentals is that the Bible is not merely true, but that those who wrote it, wrote it in dictation from God. God dictated the words in the Bible and they wrote them down. Consequently, there is no room in fundamentalism for the latest discoveries, insights, provisional inclusion, conclusions that are reached by contemporary scholarship. I say provisional conclusions because we don't know yet what's yet around the corner. There could be other things that are coming that will give us further enlightenment about our religious and theological studies. So just be aware that it's okay for me to say what I'm about to say about the Gospel of John, but that fundamentalists would reject that there are at least three sources of uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, authors, we could call them. Uh, the Gospel of John developed over a period of a number of decades. Uh, as Jewish followers of Jesus came to terms in their synagogue setting, with their experience of Jesus and his life and his teachings, and they did that until they got extruded from the synagogues. So keep in mind that the Gospel of John was written somewhere in the very late 90s that overt, explicit um, persecution of Jesus' followers was in full sway about the age of six, about the year 65, so the, the gospel was put together in that kind of context. So the gospel of John begins with what's called the um, hymn to the world and hymn to the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Do you remember that, that first part of John? And then the last part of John is um, called by most scholars the book of glory. You know, Jesus gives no parables in the gospel of John. He just gives long and uh, depending on your persuasion, either tedious or boring speeches uh, near the end of the gospel, sometimes interspersed in the gospel, but to get particularly near the end. And then in the middle of the gospel, there are these seven sign stories. Now, you know, I hope you remember that the gospels were written to fit the liturgy of the Jewish synagogue. Mark fits about six months of the Jewish year. The Luke and Matthew expand to the whole year. John takes an entirely different approach. 
And so he creates, the writers create these stories, signed stories. There are seven of them. Because in Judaism, how many days did it take to create the world? Seven days. So there's seven stories. A lot of people never think of this sort of thing. But it's good to know about. So the, the stories that we have, and we've dealt with um, all but one of them. We're dealing right now with uh, one. We started with the wine, the water changing into wine at the wedding at Cana. The healing of the royal officious son in Capernaum. The healing of the paralytic at Bethesda. The feeding of the multitudes. Jesus walking on water. And now we're up to this, the healing of the blind man, born blind from birth, which is a very significant distinction. And then when we eventually get to it, we will deal with the raising of Lazarus. Those are the ones. So last Sunday we began with this. I want to read it to you again so that you will know it. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a, blind man, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, <clears throat> causing him to be born blind? And Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there's plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this and then spit in the dust, made a clay with paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash at the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. The man went and washed and saw. Now, I said last week that today, and uh, it's just ironic that we had this horrible event happen yesterday, that today we were going to deal with the issue of theodicy. I know you woke up this morning and said, God, I hope he talks about theodicy today. <laughs> All right, technical stuff first. Theodicy comes from two words, uh, theos, meaning God, and decay, dikei, um, meaning judgment. And so it was a philosophy or a theology thought up uh, about justifying God. That's really, if you put those two words together, what they mean, justifying God. The word theodicy was coined by um, Gottfried Leibniz. He was from uh, Leipzig. Leipzig is where Bach was organist of the church, wrote most of his music, was in Leipzig. And uh, Leibniz was a true polymath. He was proficient in majorly philosophy, theology, but then also in math, politics, law, physics, biology, medicine, linguistics, and history. He was a smart dude. So um, the basic definition of, of theodicy is um, how could an all-powerful, all-knowing, even more importantly, an all-loving God allow evil and suffering to exist in the world? That's the question. Oceans of ink have been written about this topic. 
And you are so fortunate that today it's going to get settled. In uh, 1981, some of you might remember that there was a book that was published by a rabbi named Harold Kushner who wrote a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. That book became and remains a bestseller to this day. And I am glad that there are people who have benefited from that book. It has the worst title ever given to any book that I can think of. Because to label things bad or good and people good or bad is a really risky business. But I said last week I was going to deal with this and later in the day my research department contacted me And for those of you who don't know, for years I would joke about having a research department and somebody who watches online thought I was serious. My research department is my wife who says from time to time, because she reads the New York Times and other things, and she said, here, you might benefit from this. Um, so she gave me this op-ed piece that was in the New York Times last Sunday. It's by Scott Herskowitz, who is a professor of law and philosophy. He's the author of several books. And um, one of his most recent books, I think it's yet to be published, uh, Nasty, Brutish, and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Children. This article comes from that. And I want to read you just a part of it. The world is awful at the moment. Millions have died of COVID-19, authoritarianism is on the rise abroad and at home, and now there is a war with all the death, destruction, and desolation, dislocation that entails. In dark times, many people seek refuge in religion. <clears throat> they hold fast to their faith. But darkness also drives many people away from God. My older son, Rex, is one of them. He's studying for his bar mitzvah, but he doesn't believe in God. He told me that one day when we were taking a walk. Why not, I ask. If God was real, he wouldn't let all those people die. Rex was talking about the pandemic, but he could have been talking about the killing of civilians in Kiev or any number of other atrocities he's been exposed to in his short life. Why do you say that, I ask? He said, God is supposed to take care of us. That doesn't seem like something you'd let happen if you cared and you could stop it. This is the problem of evil. It's an old philosophical question. Rex had never heard of it, but it's not uncommon for kids to rediscover ancient arguments on their own. They're thinking the world through. And if you think about God, who's supposed to be all-powerful and endlessly empathetic, the existence of evil poses serious problems. <clears throat> Why does God let us suffer? Now, just to let you know, the guy who wrote this is a professor, I said, of philosophy. He is um, got a PhD from Oxford. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a bright guy. He reaches a conclusion about God in this article that I personally would not embrace, but it does make sense to him. So this sign story that we're dealing with today is not really about suffering, 
it's mentioned, the sign story is really about seeing. It's about learning to see. It's a blind man who learns to see. And it's a metaphor for the community of Jesus believers that came out of the synagogue who had learned to see things differently. So keep that in mind. Um, so to say, that, I'm not saying this story is about suffering, but it gives us an opportunity to talk about it. Uh, the, the people in this community had come to see God in a new way as all-powerful and loving. And this is an opportunity for that community to teach other Jewish people something about the issue of suffering. Now, the Jewish understanding of God was that everything that happened came from God. I just lost. Okay. Can you see that? We lost it. It'll be back. So um, I want to read to you um, Eugene Peterson's translation of a verse from Isaiah. I form light and I create darkness. Wait. Ah, I didn't work either. All right. I form light and I create darkness. And I do not know how to work an iPad mini. No, that's not in here. That's... I'll try again. All right. I form light and I create darkness. I make harmonies and create discords. I, God, do all of these things. I create light and woe. Now, this understanding of God, the understanding of God that Jesus and his companions grew up with was not the one that you grew up with in church. They did not grow up with an understanding that God is love. They grew up with an understanding that God is just. God wouldn't send any kind of affliction to anyone unless you deserved it. So God wouldn't send an illness to someone unless they had sinned. This is likely um, why the, the Hebrews had no reference in the Hebrew scripture to doctors or medicine, unlike the New Testament. So the, the verse that we were looking at is, walking down the street, Jesus saw a blind man, and his disciples said, who sinned, this man or his father? or his parents. Now that made sense to them in that in that context. So um, it was not until you had the Greeks that you get medicine worked into healing. Hippocrates uh, repudiated the notion that God called caused illness. Um, the Greeks contributed the snakes that are on the doctor's staff that we have. That's a whole story about that. So we agree with Hippocrates, except that there is not a person in this room who has not some of that Jewish understanding of God in you because there's not a person in this room who, when some tragedy has befallen you, doesn't say, hasn't said, why this happened to me? I'm such a good person. What did I do to deserve this? So the disciples are wondering. 
And so we are left to wonder, why tragedy? Now, <clears throat> I'm sure you have likely seen the parody of the answers various religions have given to this answer. Why tragedy? Tragedy happens. Now, um, if you want to Google the full list of these, don't look up tragedy happens. Look up stuff happens, except don't use the word stuff. <laughs> All right? But I couldn't say that in church. I did one time, and it got, in, got me in trouble. I was quoting somebody else, quoting a very famous theologian. In Buddhism, tragedy happens, but it isn't really tragedy. Hinduism, this tragedy happened before. Islam, if tragedy happens, it's the will of God. Protestantism, if tragedy happened, let tragedy happen to someone else. Catholicism, if tragedy happens, you deserve it. Judaism, why does tragedy always happen to us? Mormonism, 10% of my tragedy belongs to God. Atheism, tragedy happens, therefore there is no God. Agnosticism, tragedy may or may not happen. Christian science, it's not tragedy and it's not happening. And this next one was funny when I wrote it, but probably not. National Rifle Association, tragedy doesn't happen, people do. Hi, tragedy. Now, there's some of you who, for whom this is No, there are none of you for whom this is an irrelevant question. I started to say there are some of you who, for whom serious tragedy has not yet visited you. There's, I don't think there's anybody in this room that that's true for. I was going to say, if you haven't had tragedy visit, just wait. It's coming. I think one of the things that has made Buddhism so attractive to me ever since I was in seminary and began exploring it is that it begins with the frank acknowledgement that life is difficult and that to be human is to know suffering. Now, I, I know that there are people in this room who knows what it's like when life tumbles in. You've had a tragic death in the family. There are some of you who have lost children if not uh, to death, to, to drugs or to something else. Um, you had a marriage that crumbled, a profession that didn't work out. There are things over which you had no control that have come in and twisted your life around in a direction you never would have cho chosen. And occasionally, many of us have been able to say with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why now? As if there were ever a really good time for tragedy. One of my best friends died a number of years ago, and sometime later his um, now widow 
said to me when we were having lunch and I was asking her some things about what was involved in settling the estate and getting moved and house sold and all that. And she said, you know, one of the problems with death is it's just so inconvenient. Now, I think that there are two reasons to deal with this issue of tragedy head on. For one thing, it makes no sense to have a religious belief or a spiritual practice that can't deal with this agenda. And the second reason, and this is more important, and that is that there is nothing that influences the quality of your life any more than the trouble that comes to you and what you do with it. I want to repeat that. There is nothing that comes to you and influences the quality of your life any more than the trouble that comes to you and what you deal with it, how you deal with it. Now, over the years, the church has been so interested in preserving the notion that God, and I'm trying more and more to use the word grace, pardon me, instead of God, the church has been so interested in preserving the notion that God is involved with life, which is a good thing, that it's taken several just God-awful, God-forsaken roads in offering answers to that dilemma of tragedy and suffering, which is a bad thing. For example, the church has tried to teach people to say when tragedy happens, well, it's for the best. You better be very careful how you talk about everything working together for good. For one thing, that does not go well when you're the one facing tragedy or a loved one is. I have heard well-meaning clergy and well-meaning family members say to the grieving parents of uh, when a young child has died something like, well, God needed Susie or Johnny in heaven more than you needed them down here. That is spiritual abuse. For another thing, that stance, it's all for the best, appears at the end always justifies the means, and that's not true. I have seen plenty of situations where nobody gets any good out of it whatsoever. Now, I'm going to circle back to this point again before we're done today, but um, I'll tell you something about the most famous, most beloved story in the Bible and how it applies to this situation. Another uh, way the church has tried to relate God to tragedy is to say that things happen to teach us something or to make us stronger or to help us be more courageous or to develop some virtue. Um, Early in my career when I was serving in a a seminary-appointed church, I had to go to the home of a widow with some bad news. She'd been a widow for a long time. She was confined to a wheelchair. She was dependent on her alcoholic son who lived with her for basic care and attention. That means things like providing her meals, getting her to the bathroom, getting her into and out of bed, that sort of thing. And my task was to inform her that her other adult child, who is living in another city, uh, had died. Now, I don't remember why that fell to me to do, but it did. Maybe they didn't have a phone. I don't remember. So I went, and uh, I told her why I was there, and she received the news calmly. And then she said to me, well, you know, 
God gives us no more than we can bear. And <clears throat> that's a corrupted interpretation of some verse in the New Testament. And I was aware of her courage. I was in awe of her strength. And though I knew that might be true for her, I had already seen more people be given more than they could bear. At the time, this is in the 60s, I was helping parents bury the bodies of their sons who were coming back from Vietnam. They had more than they could bear. And I was visiting with some men who were coming back, and though I had never heard of the term post-traumatic stress disorder, I saw it full in the face. They had more than they can bear. I have been privileged to hold grown men and hear them wail like babies because they were confronting the fact that they had actually killed another human being. A few years ago, I sat with a man returned from a tour in Iraq, and I heard him tell me about the night patrol he was heading when he called mortar fire down because an advance watch out had detected enemy activity, and at night they'd call mortar fire down on this position. And the next morning when it was light to see what they had done to go survey the damage, he discovered that they had bombed a school full of grammar-aged children who were taking shelter there. It was horrifying to hear about. It was ten times more horrible to tell about and to have done. So I can attest to you that there are plenty of people who are given more than they can bear. And then, of course, there's the kind of thinking reflected in the story we have before us today, the belief that when tragedy strikes, it's the punishment from God. And as I've said, I've indicated there's not anybody here who's free of that, not even me. I've got that. What do you mean there's not a parking space for me? So this infected early Christian thinking. Jesus is executed at the hands of the Roman authorities. It's blessed by the leadership of the Jewish leadership and, and, the, and the Romans. By all accounts, Jesus is a good man. They tell the story of how before his execution he prayed, not, thy, not my will, but thy will be done. And somehow the church, and we had no organized church at the time, but the, the followers of Jesus felt it had an obligation to prove that the death of Jesus was the will of God. So over the centuries, there have been these fantastic theological systems that have been used to provide the proof. And the craziest of these theories at the, is that the execution of Jesus was a good thing because it somehow saved us. There upon the cross, God punished Jesus for your sins As Richard Rohr said, who would go out on a second date with such a God? <laughs> now, if you spend time in the trenches of doing public and practical theology, and what I'm talking about is in the rooms and wards of Texas Children's Hospital, or some other similar place, or doing hospice work, this understanding of God will not get you anywhere. 
The God who causes tragedy is clearly the invention of our hands, our minds. This God is shaped by our needs. This is not a God I could worship or give my life to. Now, I said something like that in here some time ago, and someone said to me, what do you mean when you say that God is a human construct? <clears throat> and um, so I'll give a brief answer to that. In the long course of monotheistic history, God is presented in many, many, many different ways. If you read the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see that God takes many shapes and many forms. So usually God is given the attributes that we have. Someone said that if horses had gods, God would look like horses. Right? So consequently, you sometimes see in the Hebrew scripture, uh, God is something of a giant a warrior who mounts a war chariot. I'll try again. Okay. All right. We'll get up there. Um, flinging arrows like bolts of lightning or God's in the clouds, throwing bolts of lightning down to earth. Because that's the way we see ourselves. So one of the God creations we came up with is the kind of God that would take a burden off our backs. And when you really stop and look at it, what we ask God, this God that we create, to take away from us is the burden of being human. Right? And if you're human, what's going to happen to you? You're going to grow old, get sick, and die. That's part of being human. <clears throat> so that kind of God doesn't set us free. That kind of God leads us into illusion and causes us to avoid life. So keep in mind uh, the new trinity. Um, we had, and you're going to be so envious when I tell you this. We had Michael and Maria Morewood as our house guests this past weekend. Yeah. Uh, he said to me, clearly, don't tell anybody I'm coming. I don't want to do any teaching. I just want to come. I'm going to make a trip across, my goodbye trip across the United States, and Maria and I want to come see you and Sherry. Okay, so that was fun. And we talked a lot about this sort of stuff. And he, I told him what I had come up with about the new Trinity, and he said, I wouldn't even use the word Trinity, but I do. Love, honesty, freedom. Got to keep that in mind. So that all that is a background. Why a tragedy? I got the answer. Seriously. I hope you find this as helpful as I found it for me uh, to be set free of wondering about stuff. Some tragedy occurs as statistical probability. You know, we got a created order here that is made up of many things, including germs and viruses. Take the antibiotic penicillin. When penicillin first came on the scene, it brought healing to multitudes of people. Some people, however, are deathly allergic to penicillin and it killed them. Now, are those deaths the will of God? I think not. 
A more honest answer would be to say that there is a statistical probability that some people will be allergic to and killed by penicillin while others will be healed by it. The Russian and Ukrainian soldiers fighting each other, some of them will die. If you're in war, the statistical probability is you're going to get shot. Now, you Second Amendment writers, be patient with me. But this country has a psychosis about guns. A DSM-4, 5, 6, or whatever we're up to now, psychosis about guns. And the statistical probability is that if you put a lot of guns in the hands of crazy people, you're going to get a lot of shoot-ups. It's just nuts. I'm having trouble keeping this thing going for some reason. Which is to say there's a cause and effect relationship to things that go on in life. You drink, you drink alcohol and drive, the statistical probability goes up you're going to have a wreck. You smoke a lot, the statistical probability is you're going to get lung cancer. You fail to follow a reasonable diet and exercise, and you run the risk of early death through heart attack and stroke. You have an affair and get caught. The statistical probability is you're going to get shot by your spouse. <laughs> so the statistical probability is that anybody in here could have a stroke or a heart attack or an accident or whatever between now and next Sunday. That's, those are the odds. Now, that may sound like a terribly cold way of looking at things, but I contend it's a terribly honest way and that we should not fear such honesty. That's one of the elements of the new trinity. Now, a second answer to why tragedy is human limitation. Fifty years ago, the only statement that could be given if you went down the street to M.D. Anderson with a cancer diagnosis was, there's not much we can do for you. We got morphine for pain. We do have a few experimental drugs. We'll try one. Today, if you go to MD Anderson, the likelihood is your oncologist is gonna say, we've seen this a thousand times. We know exactly what to do. We got your back. Um, I have a dear friend who, because of a leukemia illness, developed pulmonary fibrosis. And daily he was losing the ability to breathe. He was suffocating to that. And almost a year ago to this day, he had a double lung transplant and is up today working out, living a normal life. Twenty years ago, that would not have been possible because we were limited. But our human capacities are growing and growing, and so when we say that tragedy is a result of human limitation, we're overcoming those limitations all the time. No, we will not overcome the limitation of not ever having to die, but it's a nice thought. And then the third cause of human tragedy is evil and suffering. Putin's invasion of Ukraine is an evil thing. 
that 18-year-old child who got an AK-47 and inscribed it with racial epithets and drove 200 miles to kill those people, that was an act of evil. And that kid didn't grow up in a Petri dish. He had a family. He learned all that stuff somewhere. The year is 1963. I am just entering my doctoral studies, and as was the expected and customary thing to do, I was serving yet another church where seminary appointments were the thing, way things were done. And I look back on those times now, and I realize um, that we seminarians were way too young and way too inexperienced to be doing what we were doing. Nonetheless, and from my perspective at the time, things could not have been better. I had, I had a church with a parsonage, and um, I was a senior guy at my young age. And um, then came the call that a child had just died in our community. And I'd never dealt with anything like that. I didn't know the family. I was new to the community. They were new to the community. So I decided to go offer my services. They were not part of our church. And what I found out when I got to their house was a mentally defective mother and father who had allowed their fourth child, a little girl who was 13 weeks old, to starve to death. Now, later on, I would learn that she had had two other children taken away from them by Child Protective Services. This is right north of Dallas. They didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I myself had just had our first child and I was, I had all this stirred up stuff about being protective of children. I've never understood, been able to get my mind around parents abusing children, sexually abusing children. Just didn't under, I couldn't get, get to that. And of course that was all stirred up about how could they do this to this little girl? So I arranged to get the body from Parkland Hospital in Dallas. I circumvented some of the procedures the Dallas County Sheriff's Office wanted because that would just bind things up with red tape. He could deal with these young parents later. I talked the funeral home into giving us the services because they couldn't afford anything of a funeral for this little child. So we got the body out of the morgue. We had the service the same night that we got the body in a little casket about this big. We had it at night in a cemetery with a plot donated, headlights of the cars illuminating the service where we are, a few people gathered around for the, for the burial. And after the service, one of my church members, a guy who was a leader in the church, was trying to minister to me because I was shaken by this. Couldn't get my head around it. And this is what he said. Bill, this is all right. What kind of life would she have had with those people as parents? This was in God's hands. God was doing that little girl a favor. Now that kind of thinking is barbaric. To write at the bottom of somebody's death certificate, cause of death, malnutrition, that's barbaric. So later on, this was the talk of the community, right? 
Did you hear what happened to And people would say, well, this, is, this was done to teach us a lesson. And it was true that some of us were more sensitive to our families for a few days. It's like when you drive by a really bad car wreck and you're more careful for the next few miles <laughs> and then you speed up again. So the why for little Donna Sue's name, that was her, her death, that was her name, the why of her death was to be found in the inhumane act of two sick people who, if you look far enough back, were likely themselves produced by inhumane family dynamic. So tragedy comes to us, I think, because of these three reasons. Statistical probability, human limitation, and human wickedness. So then people still wonder about, well, where does what we refer to as God's will come from? Some of you who went to the early service or will go to the late service, or if you go to a funeral recently or some, one coming up or a wedding, you'll pray the Lord's Prayer. And in it, uh, there is the line, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what is God's will? Does God have a will for your life? And the answer is yes. And that, God's will, if you want to call it this, is love, honesty, and freedom. Now, we live in a culture where those things are not highly valued. Just look at what's going on in politics to judge how love and honesty and freedom are really valued in our culture. So a lot of people, when they really hear what God's will means, says, uh, no, I don't think so. So you go to work tomorrow and you gather around a water cooler and somebody says, hey, did you hear about Harry? No, what? God's will was done in his life. No, you're kidding. He seemed like such a nice guy. I just had lunch with him the other day. Oh, my, you just never know. <clears throat> God's will is that we choose love, honesty, and freedom. Where life is broken, God's will is to put it back together, to restore, to bring life out of death. This is what truly the Jesus or Christ religion has to offer to other religions is this thing about new life. Now, I mentioned to you before that, uh, that before I was done today, I was going to circle back and talk about this why tragedy issue by reminding you of one of the most beloved stories in the Jewish Christian scripture. It's one that you all know, whether you've been to church or not, you know this story. You've all heard the story of Joseph and his multicolored coat, right? Joseph and his coat of many colors. It is a disappointment for people to learn that the Hebrew does not say that. Joseph didn't have a coat of many colors. He had a coat with long sleeves. But when they made the King James Version, they didn't know how to put that into English. So they said, oh, his coat had a lot of colors. It was just a, a coat with long sleeves and not the fashion of the day. But um, Joseph was a jerk. He antagonized his brothers. 
He refused to work in the fields. He paraded around in these fancy clothes as his father's favorite son. He related to them in a dream that one day they would all bow down and worship him. <clears throat> and so they thought of the idea of killing him. And don't be too harsh. You got relatives you thought about... <laughs> Oh, man, I hope he doesn't come to our Thanksgiving dinner. You know, that's sort of So they were going to kill him, and one of the brothers said, bad idea. So a caravan of people are passing, Egyptians are passing, and they sold Joseph into slavery. Good riddance. They uh, killed a sheep, put the blood on Joseph's clothes, took it to their father and said he was killed, and the father grieved, and that was the end of the story for decades. And then a famine hits the land, and Joseph's father sends the remaining brothers to Egypt to get some grain. Now, they don't know it, but Joseph has been made head of the grain distribution system <laughs> for Egypt. Because he has used his skills or his wiles, we don't know. Uh, he's he's good manager and he's good at dream interpretation. He gets a series of promotions till he's in charge of grain distribution. And one day his brothers show up, but all this time has passed. He's grown a beard, gotten some tattoos or whatever. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them, and he toys with them a little bit, you know, like a cat would with a toy. And then later, Joseph says, uh, eh, I'm your brother, Joseph. And they go, oh, my God, we are in big trouble. <laughs> and Joseph says, eh, take it easy. Just relax. Don't be upset. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. God sent me here so that I might be able to provide food for my people in this time of famine. It was not you, it was the will of God. Now, I want to be clear. It was human wickedness all the way around that got Joseph in that position. And probably some of his own dishonesty. But he had so responded to that situation that he was able to say to his brothers, don't worry about it. I found the healing in this situation. We have the opportunity, no matter what life gives us, to respond in ways that lead to peace, hope, love, joy, patience, humility, or not. That's up to us. Now, sometimes our internal resources are such that we can't make such a response. That's why being part of a community that embraces such values is so important. So that when you cannot carry yourself, you can be carried. And of course, in time, return the favor. So go from here, living the life you want to live. Just do it in ways that honor truth, love, and freedom. See you here next week. Thank you.